Good morning, Village Church East. Good to see you this morning. Yo, good, good. I was waiting to see if anybody was glad to see me this morning. <clears throat> we have people from cruises back. Welcome back, you guys. How is, uh, is the sun still shining somewhere? Uh, it's nice to hear. Glad you enjoyed it. <clears throat> For the rest of us struggling with life in Illinois, <clears throat> take heart. It's almost over. Uh, just two more months to endure this weather, and we'll be back to summer at some point. I'm, I'm very excited this morning because I get to start a brand new series with you this morning in the book of Exodus. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Old Testament books. Uh, I love them because they're largely narrative. There's some poetry in there and some different kinds of genres of writing, but uh, the narrative part I love because it kind of tells the story of what God is doing. Exodus is a continuation of the story that God began from the very start in the book of Genesis. And I get to kind of talk to you about that today, which is really, really exciting for me. This new series that we're beginning is going to take up three Sundays. We're going to continue all the way through Exodus, but we're going to divide it up into a couple of different chunks. And the first one is called Forgotten. And this is our first Sunday to talk about this and when God's promises contradict our reality. And we're going to get to talk about what that's uh, all like. But before we do that, I want to tell you about a comedian that I saw once. This guy was hilarious, and I don't even remember who it was. But I remember he told this story about uh, taking his kids to Six Flags. How many of you have been to Six Flags? You've been to Six Flags? All right, so he decides that his kids are now old enough that he's going to take them to Six Flags. They've been asking him to go. They've been bugging him to go. But as you well know, you need a small mortgage on your house in order to go. So he has saved for a while so that he can take his kids to Six Flags. He's scrimped. He's saved. He's thinking to himself, I'm going to be father of the year. I'm going to take my kids to Six Flags. And he builds it up. They tell their friends. He's, he's excited about taking them. They pull into the parking lot. They walk through. They, they go on all the rides. They get there nice and early when it opens up so they can make sure that they get all the rides in. Uh, they feast on, on funnel cakes like kings until the juices drip down their chin. At the end of the day, he tuckers them out so much. They get in the car. They're driving home. He looks in the rearview mirror, and he's thinking to himself, as father of the year, now he's going to get the accolades he deserves. So he asks the question that every dad or a mom would ask at that point, Kids, did you have a good time? And they're sitting in the back, and the older kid speaks first, and he says, you know, Johnny's dad took him to Disney World. (laughs) We hate you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny, right? It's funny. It's like, he's thinking to himself, I'm going to get these accolades, and have you ever felt a little bit underappreciated. You ever felt like you've done, like, gone out of your way in order to make something happen, and you pulled it off, and you're waiting for a thank you, the thank you's never come. More, more, more than that, have you ever felt like you've gone out of your way to do something really nice for somebody, and they, they not only just forget to thank you, they just forget about it altogether. You feel totally forgotten. To you, you've backed up your life in order to do something for somebody else. And they just accept it and walk right by. Even more than that. Have you ever been in a situation where you've done that for somebody else? You've poured your life into them in some gracious way, and they've actually ended up maybe a matter of years 
or maybe even weeks or months later, treating you badly. So these stories are not unusual to us because each one of us has... We, we live among people that remind us sometimes of ourselves a lot, but remind us that we are living in a little bit of a thankless world. This is a situation we find ourselves in when we open up the book of Exodus. Exodus walks us right into a continuing story from the book of Genesis, and the story is all about these people who have been not just not thanked, but forgotten about. So if you've got your Bibles or your uh, LCD screens, you want to turn them on right now, now's the time to do it. Find your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 1. It starts out this way. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi. Do these names sound familiar to anybody who's been tracking with us for the last couple of months here? Yeah. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. This is actually a brand new book. And what you don't see in the English Standard Version, but is there in the Hebrew Version, is that this, acts, this paragraph, chapter 1, begins with the word and. Now, if you've gone to school for any length of time, how, how do your teachers like you beginning a sentence with the word and? That doesn't go so well, right? But you include the word and because what what are you trying to do? You're trying to continue a thought, a thought that was previous. As you start the book of Exodus in Exodus 1 verse 1, it actually begins with the word and, which tells you Exodus is connected to the book that that just came before, to Genesis. This is a brand new book, but it is connected with the Pentateuch. It is meant to be a continuing story from Genesis to Exodus. That's why all of these words, are, all of these names are listed, and you're going, who is Levi? Who is Reuben? Well, we're, the writer is assuming you've already read about each one of these 12 brothers. And on a scale of 1 to 10, for those of you who have been tracking with us, on a scale of 1 to 10, as to brothers you would love to have in your family, uh, being number 10... You wish that you could have them in your family. And brothers you wish would be in the worst enemy of your life's family. That will say that's a number one, all right? Brothers you would rather not have around. You, you really don't like, would not like them to be related to you at all. That would be a number one. Where would each one of these brothers fall on your scale? One to ten. Do you remember these guys? They'd probably be a one or a minus one. What do we know about these guys? Were they gracious? Were they loving? Were they, were they kind? Let, let me just put it this way. How did they treat their brother Joseph? Do, do you remember any of that story? These guys, and even when they were blessed by their dad, they were reminded about the kind of character they needed to overcome. Now, you may not know the story of Genesis, and I'd encourage you to uh, jump backwards a little bit in time, get on the podcast or, or on our, uh, uh, on our um, sermon that we, sermons that we post, and you can come up, bring yourself up to speed, but let me just bring you up to speed in this message so that we can all be on the same page. Jacob was the father of Joseph, all right? Joseph was the great-grandson of Abraham, and Joseph was these guys' brothers, his, their, their brother. Abraham, 
Joseph's great-grandfather was promised by God two things. Do you remember what the two things were? The first one is that he would be the father of a great nation. Right. And the second promise was that he would be, uh, his, his nation, his, his progeny, would receive this huge piece of land. We call it the promised land. Anytime you read about the promised land in the Old Testament, you're referring to the promise that was given to Abraham. Here's the way that, uh, that it went in the Old Testament. Joseph was the brother, um, before you throw that up there, uh, Kathy, Joseph was the brother that these guys did not like. <clears throat> Joseph was, had the ability to uh, interpret dreams, and his father loved Joseph more than the other brothers. Do you remember this? Cobwebs coming off. The brothers decide that they're going to get even with Joseph because they don't like him because he's always bragging about being able to interpret dreams and what was coming next in their lives. And so they decide they're going to get even with Joseph, and they decide to beat him up, throw him in a pit, and sell him to the Ishmaelites in slavery, right? The Ishmaelites buy Joseph. He's taken in slavery. And the brothers go to their dad and say, bad news, when Joseph was out in the field with us, we ran into a flock of goats, and the goats killed him. So, yeah, it wasn't goats, but that's, uh, that's, that makes the story funny. So they come back and they tell their dad, and their dad is, is, is incredibly distraught, thinking that his brother died, or his son died, while the rest of the brothers pocket the money and are grateful that they're rid of Joseph. In the meantime, Joseph is brought down to what country? Egypt, very good. And he's sold into slavery into Egypt. He's sold, first of all, to what person? Do you remember this? Potiphar, that's right. He sold into Potiphar's house. Potiphar was a very important person in Egypt. Potiphar ended up being able to trust Joseph because Joseph was trustworthy. He was a good worker. And so he ended up giving him rule of his house. Potiphar's wife had the hots for Joseph. Do you remember this now? He li- she lied about Joseph because Joseph refused to be with her. So she lied about Joseph and got him thrown into prison. You remember this? He ends up in prison, and he thinks he's there for the rest of his life. Nobody knows he's there. Nobody cares about him. While he's in prison, he meets uh, the butler and the baker. Remember that? These guys had dreams, or or these guys had dreams when they were in prison, and he interpreted the dreams for them because Joseph could interpret dreams. They get out of prison, and one of them, later on in the future, reminds the Pharaoh of Joseph. Why? Because Pharaoh has a dream, too. Pharaoh's dream was weird. It's about thin cows eating fat cows and, and thin corn eating fat corn. You remember? The, and and he, he couldn't sleep at night. So, Joseph, uh, so the, the, the cupbearer goes to the king and says, I know this guy that can interpret dreams and you're not sleeping at night. Let's call him up here. Joseph shows up in front of Pharaoh, interprets his dreams. Not only does he interpret his dream, but he also tells Pharaoh how he can get rich off it because he said seven years of famine are coming or seven years of plenty are coming, and then seven years of famine are coming. Here's what you should do. And he gives the Pharaoh a way to get rich off the process. Pharaoh makes Joseph in charge of everything in Egypt. Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph, he gives him the best land in Egypt. Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph that he gives him the most riches in Egypt. Pharaoh is number two in Egypt. Then the famine comes seven years later. Everybody's affected by the salmon famine. (laughs) By the salmon famine. Everybody's affected by the famine. So his brothers come down from Canaan. They come down to the only place who has food, which is Egypt, Joseph. And they show up in front of Joseph, and Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. So he plays a little game with them. 
And he wants to find out if their character has changed. Over time, he realizes that the character has indeed changed. He ends up forgiving them. He introduces them to Pharaoh. That's a risk. And Pharaoh says, yeah, bring them all down and gives them the best place on the planet. Goshen. Where they can grow, where they can have their families, where they can live off the land. Joseph has impressed Pharaoh. Pharaoh has been gracious to, um, to Joseph, and now they're all living in Egypt. And they live there in two, for, for about 200 years in great opulence, great prosperity. In fact, in verse 5, it says, All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. How many people came down to Egypt related to Joseph? How many people was that? 70. It was his brothers, their wives, their kids. 70 people come down. They live in Goshen. Joseph was already in Egypt. Verse 6, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. And 200 years passed. And during this time period, they multiply like rabbits. They have all kinds of kids. They fill this land of Goshen like nobody's business. And Genesis reminds us of the Joseph story because it's important for us to understand what has happened before we understand the atrocity about to happen. God is reminding us he's still working on those two promises. Let me give them to you. Genesis 17.5. No longer when he talks to Abraham, which is Joseph's great-grandfather. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you. That's a good promise, right? Now all of that is coming to pass, not in Canaan, but where is it coming to pass, church? What country is this coming to pass in? Egypt. They are becoming a great nation, but they are in the wrong place. Because the second promise, I'll remind you of that in in verse 8, two two verses later, Genesis 17, 8, And I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of what, church? Canaan, not Egypt, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And, 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 and. God is doing a continual story here. Joseph was a cog in the wheel. His brothers, they were cogs in the wheel. Ultimately, now promise is coming true. And they are filling the land, but they are filling the wrong land. Verse 7. Here's how it says it in the Bible. Back to Exodus. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So the land was what? filled with them. This is interesting because the population of Israel, if you read this in the Hebrew, it actually uses the word swarm. Have you ever been attacked by a swarm of, uh, of, of uh, mosquitoes or something like that? It's like you can't get away from them, right? This is the word that the Hebrew uses to um, help us understand they were fertile. It was a swarm. There were so many numbers there. The land was simply filled. Now, it would be easy for these guys to think they're already experiencing the promises of God. Why? Because they're in a land, and they are multiplying like crazy. They, are, they had pull in this land because they could always refer back to Joseph. They could always look at their neighbors and say, well, we're Israelites. We helped save you. 
And the people of Egypt loved the Israelites. Now, I know this is crazy weird language because they're about to treat them extremely poorly and make them slaves. But at this point in time, Pharaoh loved Joseph. Pharaoh loved his brothers. Joseph has forgiven his brothers. It's like, it's the end of every Hallmark movie. It's, uh, this is why Beth loves the Hallmark movies. They always end with, and they lived happily ever after. You know? I, I just want to see a Hallmark start five months after they get married you know, and see how that goes. But anyway, that's, that's just me, morbid me. Single-handedly, Joseph has saved all of Egypt and made it not only, not only saved it from destruction, but made it the greatest nation on the planet. And this was all promised by God. Sometimes, don't you think sometimes you've got God figured out? Sometimes like, like you'll be in a situation and you'll think to yourself, yes, this is where God wants me to be. Why? Because I have peace. It's really challenging to judge your situation by your feelings of peace. I can almost guarantee you every single one of the disciples, as they were growing in their faith, experienced not good moments of peace. God's Holy Spirit will give you a feeling of, of fitting in or, or being where God wants you to be. But if you judge it by, yes, we're all fat and happy and living under our own olive trees. If you go by that kind of a situation, you're going to misjudge where God wants you to be. Because most of the time, he's, he just wants to keep stretching you for what comes next. These children of Israel could have easily said, listen, look at this. We got the best piece of land in Egypt Egypt loves us. Pharaoh loves us. We're multiplying like crazy. Let's just stay here and make it our home. But the problem is, you may not be today where God needs you to be tomorrow. And the Hebrews were not where they needed to be yet. And between Exodus 1 and verse 6 and Exodus 1 and verse 7, 300 years pass in one verse. 300 years pass. And during that time, they are experiencing grace and opulence and growth, but they are about to experience some very painful moments. Why? Because God needs to get this massive group of people back to where he needs them to be. Out of their comfort zone and back to Canaan. But my question to you, church, is, if you're experiencing a great moment of growth and you're just happy and you're under your own olive tree and you're just fat and happy and things are going great and your bank account's full and your kids are, eh, kids, but you, you feel like, okay, things are going well. How hard is it to get you to move? God has to move these people who have it really well to a place where they actually are desperate to move because by now there's hundreds of thousands of them. Verse 8, 300 years pass and there arises a king over Egypt. Read this next phrase with me, will you? Who did not know Joseph? Does that scare you? It's kind of a, a foreboding phrase. He did not know Joseph. Why is that important? Because Joseph was revered by Egypt. And now there's a king who couldn't care less about Joseph. So we know something bad is about to happen. This word actually is, he forgot Joseph. 
Now, there's no way Joseph could have been forgotten. Joseph was single-handedly the guy that saved Egypt and made it the most powerful nation on earth. It's like saying America exists without George Washington. You've got to have that person in the gap so that you can understand how the transition took place. It'd be, it'd be impossible for us to forget about George Washington, just like it would be impossible for these people to forget about Joseph. He was talked about. He was referred to. When all the kids would say, remember, they didn't have their, their LCD screens. So when they would tuck them into bed at night, they would tell them stories of Joseph and his brothers. Everything was passed on by oral tradition. It's not that they forgot about Joseph. It has to be something more than that. So here's my suggestions. Here's what it likely means. And tell me if this sounds familiar. Maybe Joseph was conveniently forgotten about. In other words, maybe a generation rose up that just didn't care less about Joseph. They weren't thankful for what Joseph did. Maybe this new, new generation didn't feel like they owed Joseph anything. And maybe they just felt like they knew it all. And who cares who came before? It kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Some generations that we've experienced. That could be the case. Or number two, maybe they intentionally forgot. In other words, maybe they chose to ignore contributions from previous generations. It's not that they were just not thankful. They didn't think those contributions really added at all to what they had become. They were completely oblivious to the blood, sweat, and tears that gave them what they enjoy today. Remember, this is a generation 300 years after Joseph that is enjoying prosperity in in, in Egypt. Or number three... Maybe they ignorantly forgot. Maybe they didn't know, meaning that maybe a group came in and took over Egypt and couldn't care less about the history of Egypt because they just destroyed all the Egyptians in order to take it. Now, you should know, right around 1650 BC, a group did just this. They were called the Hyksos. They came out of the Canaanite area. They were half-Semitic tribes. They came out of the Canaanite area, and they moved in and took over Egypt. Some scholars think this group took over Egypt and couldn't care less about a guy named Joseph that made Egypt what it was because now they're making a brand new country out of Egypt. And the Hyksos ended up ruling over Egypt for a couple hundred years. The principle is this. Egypt forgets, the nation forgets, the world forgets, and that brings me back to my original question. Have you ever felt forgotten? Unthanked. Taken advantage of poured your life into a situation or somebody and found out that not only could they not care less, but they intentionally forget all of what you've given to them. This has to go through the mind of every parent at some point. I do all of this for you, and you repay me by doing this. Here's the bad news. The generation that follows our generation will always, always struggle with this. We currently live in a culture where our generation is not only thankless, but judging the generation before. But the good news is this, church, God keeps track. God keeps track. He works on a different level. One of the most important things that we have in our house, if you walk into our house, is not anything worth value to anybody except to Beth and me. If you walk into our house into the main entryway, you'll see that there is a little table there and there's a little mirror there. And beside the mirror is a little picture. It's no bigger than this. And the picture is of the church where we served as 
senior pastor first, lead pastor. When we left that church, they took a wonderful picture of the church. They put it into this frame. They gave it to us as a gift. And underneath the picture of the church is this verse. And it's from Hebrews 6.10, and here's what it says. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving his saints, as you still do. Isn't that a good verse? You may feel unthanked, forgotten, overlooked, but please understand in faith, God does not overlook anything. What's done for him, indeed, will last. You have an advocate keeping score, and he loves you more than you could possibly know. Verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel, whoever this king is that's forgotten Joseph, said to his people, his leadership, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply more. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now keep in mind, now that it's more than they, this leader forgot who Joseph was, conveniently or inconveniently or whatever, it's more than just forgotten about Joseph. Now they are fearful of Joseph's family. This is jealousy motivated by oppression, fear. The, the jealousy is these guys have the best place in the land. I, here's a picture of the land that they own. T- take a look at this. What do you see here? What's the color you see? You see green, but what's the rest of it? Brown. Guess where the Israelites lived? In the green. They have the best section of Egypt. They have the best section for hundreds of miles around. And when the people, whoever this was, whether it was the Hyksos or the Egyptians who conveniently forgot who Joseph was, they were now jealous that these guys, these people who weren't even their people, got the best land. And they were fearful as well. It's interesting this verse says, and they should escape from the land. This is not like they're hoping to keep them in the land. This is, uh, the way this is phrased, this is probably better understood They were fearful that they would come over and take possession of the rest of the land. Not that they will escape from their land, but they would move their land to take over the rest of the land. Verse 11. So they decide to set up taskmasters over them and afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied And the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Fear began to strike at the hearts of the Egyptians because they just saw this growing mass. And the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied. Verse 13, so what did they do? Made it harder on them. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. This, by the way, is what is referred to all the way through Scripture. Their time in Egypt is always referred to as a time of slavery. Slavery that lasts for hundreds of years and crushed the nation of Israel. Verse 14, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. All their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. What is the word that keeps popping up in this this verse? Work. How many of you love, love to work? My dad loved to work. He loved to work. His, his uh, family time was us working with him. That was my dad. He loved to work. He was, a, 
He, he just loved to use his hands. And I, some of my best memories actually were spending time with dad doing work. That's not what this word means. Work can be a blessing. Work can be a, a thing that brings fulfillment in life, but work can easily become your taskmaster. If you give your, your life over to work, you watch what it does to your family. You may think you're getting fulfillment out of working while your family forgets what you look like at home. Work can easily become our taskmaster. And in two verses, the word work or a derivative of work is used here. This is why when they get to Sinai, just a little while later, they get to Sinai. The fourth command God gives to them is to help them regulate their lives. And the fourth command is, remember to take a day of what? Rest. Why? Because God showed us how to do that way back when he created the world. Did God need a rest? No, God neither slumbers nor sleeps. Do you know why he took a day of rest? To demonstrate to us how he created us to function in his image. Work, work hard. Don't be lazy, but take a day of rest. That's, for me, that's like one of the hardest things to do. Because if I got free time, I fill it up doing something. It's hard to take time off. But when we take time off, we live out the image of God in us. Bottom line, the Hebrews were no longer respected people in their communities. People around them were afraid of them. They were suspicious of them. They were jealous of them. No longer were they important. No longer were they recognized for their hard work to make this a great nation. Now they were despised. They were targeted. And they were made into slaves. No longer were they comfortable. They were now forced from comfort into slavery. They were afraid at how their children would be treated and what they would grow up in. Listen, the children of Israel had to be asking, where are the promises of God? One of them is coming true. We're growing into a great nation. There's hundreds of thousands of us. But why are we in slavery? Shouldn't we be taking the land rather than the land taking us? They must have thought, why is God doing this to us? What is God possibly doing here? So here's your so what's for the day. Number one. Oh, this is so hard. The plans that God has for us are always the best plans. The plans that God has for us are always the best plans. Now, that is an easy Sunday school thing to say. I love saying it in church, actually. But you put rubber to this one? And my plans are much easier to navigate than taking God by faith at his plans. Because I don't know what he's doing. And he doesn't write in the sky for me. And he doesn't explain it to me. He just expects me to live the next day by faith and the next day by faith. And the plans that he brings into my life, sometimes I'm going, I have no idea what you're doing here. But God's plans for me are always the best plans. We must always agree that God's plans must be better than our perceived reality. And church, we can get mighty comfortable where we are, right? It's so easy for us to get stuck where we are. I mean, I look at my kids and I'm thinking to myself, I just wish time would stand still. This is my favorite moment. You know, and then I look at the pictures and I'm thinking, you ever watch uh, uh, Christmas Vacation? Such a great scene. He's up in the attic and he's playing this, these films of when he was a kid. And he's sitting there and he's just like crying. He's watching, <laughs> watching these films. And he's thinking to himself back when it was. And, 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 and now that I'm getting older and I'm looking at the pictures of the little girls that used to be little girls in my house, I'm just thinking to myself, oh, 
if time had just stood still. We can get really comfortable where we are. Sometimes that's our preference. For these guys, they had the best land in Goshen. They had the best reputation among the Egyptians. Pharaoh loved the, Egypt, uh, the, the Israelites. He loved them. Do you, do you want to know how much Pharaoh loved? I, I was debating whether I was going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you this. This is really, really interesting because we, go, we zip right through the end of the Joseph story. But you need to understand, Pharaoh is like head over heels in love with these, these Israelites. Look, look what happened. And Joseph, Joseph is a bit of a, an IRS magician. Look at, what, look at what happens in Genesis 47. Pharaoh, Pharaoh is taking Joseph at his word. Okay, a famine's going to come, so let's stockpile all the goods. And then when the famine comes, everybody from around the world is going to come. Everybody is going to come to us, and they're going to buy from us, and we're going to take their money, and we're going to give them food, and we're going to become a great nation. And that's exactly what happened. But not only did the countries around them come, the Egyptians came too. And the Egyptians had no more food, but they had money and they had land. And so when they went to Joseph, they could give Joseph money and land. And that's exactly what happened. And guess who Joseph got the money and land for? Pharaoh. Look what happened. Genesis 47, 20. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them and the land became whose church? Do you think, fam- do you f- do you think Pharaoh loved Joseph? Do you think Pharaoh loved Joseph's family? He's, a, he's the richest guy on the planet because of what Joseph did. But then Joseph, in all his wisdom, you know what he did for the Egyptians? He gave them back their land. In 47, Genesis 47, verse 24, all the harvests, this is Joseph's plan, all the harvests you shall take a fifth and give it to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your household, as food for your little ones. And, and they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. You get, this is a hallmark ending. This is, and they lived happily ever after. This is, they gave up all of their money and all of their fields, and Pharaoh says to them, you know what? Joseph told me, here's the way we're going to handle this. I'm giving you four-fifths back. You just keep giving me a fifth. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. I'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and we will become the greatest nation on the planet. Everyone loved the Hebrews because of Joseph and his generosity to them. But God knew the longer they stay, they are at risk to use their, lose their unique identity as the people of God. Their children would adapt in, they would marry people of the land, they would blend in, and the longer they stay, the more they would become the culture they were in. And there were lots of gods in Egypt to choose from. God would need to take on all of these gods in the plagues. I can't wait to get to the plagues. You're going to be amazed at what really is going on in the plagues. God is proving to his people he is the most powerful God around because they don't know him, they've forgotten about him. They began to be, believe all these little gods, these little G-gods were powerful. And God kills them all. Their children see the opulence God granted to Egypt, and they might begin to attribute it to the false gods and not to the true God. So God has to move them from where they are to where he needs them to be, a land of their own. And that brings me to number two under this one. God's long-term plans for you almost always never match up to your present reality or your perceived reality. You are always hit with surprises in life. True or false? Do you know what's going to happen to you when you go home today? I don't. 
I'm hoping I make it home today, right? I'm assuming I will. But I don't even have that as a guarantee. You and I are always surprised at what life brings us. But you need to understand, God never wakes up one morning and goes, Whoo, I never saw that coming. God is never surprised, and we constantly are. God's agenda is to get these people back home. And he will use slavery as a difficult path in order to do it. Now, these people would not choose slavery to, to, to do the will of God, but they must go through this plan of God in order to get to where he needs them to be. And God's plans may be difficult for us to maneuver or even accept, church. But if you knew what God knows, you would do what God does every time. Sometimes God goes to extreme lengths to convince us his ways are best. Let me give you a verse of scripture, Romans eight twenty eight. We love to throw this one out. I love it. Let's say this together. This is a good one. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How many of you have heard that verse before? Heard that verse? It's a good one. I've used that verse multiple times. It's a great verse to use. But you need to understand that verse does not say all things will work together for your good. Does it? All things will work together for Good. And whose good is the best good? Mm. We have a tendency to read that and say, all things will work together for my good. Ah, only if your good is always agreed upon as God's good. You know how I know that to be absolutely true? Read the last few words, last four words, according to his purpose. Do you know God's purpose for your life at the end of this day, tomorrow, the next day? I don't know what God has planned for me. But I know whatever it is, it's for his good, which means it is for my good. I may not like it, but I know in the end it's for my good. All right, second one. There's only this, the, the last one here. The plans God has for us are almost always transient. God will likely move you to a position tomorrow that you are not even imagining today. The Israelite nation had to move to Egypt, and then they had to be taken out of Egypt and moved into Canaan. They multiplied like crazy. They, they lived off the fruit of their labor, but they were never meant to stay there. So church, my first advice to you is don't get complacent. Um, so I thought about this, and I thought, this is such a good thing to remember. This little fish named Dory. Dory is a great little fish. Dory, what did what Dory say? Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. God never has you today where he needs you to be tomorrow. In fact, he might rock your world. I know, I, I used this illustration before. Um, friends of mine, very close to me, lived and, and worked very hard, and God blessed them in their lives, and they were very active in the church and very generous with their giving loved what God was doing around the world, were burdened by missionaries. And so when they retired, they sold everything they had, everything. And they decided that they were going to be missionaries, and they became completely transient individuals. They moved from place to place to work on radio towers so God's word could be piped into areas that were closed to the gospel, but open to radio signals. I think that's amazing. Just keep swimming when you least expect it, God have, may have plans for you to move to the next destination. 
We get used to having children, and then they move out. We get used to being on our own, and then we find someone to share our lives with. We get used to having the job, and then we get fired. We get used to having children in our own homes, and then we end up making, having empty nests. All of life is transitory. But the constant is that we follow where God leads us in faith. So just keep swimming. One of the first times I went to Colorado, it was on a layover. And I flew into this place, and it was, there was mountains. I got off the plane, and I'm looking out the window, and there's mountains. Three hours, I stared at these mountains, and I imagined to myself what it must have been like to ski down those slopes or to go fishing in the rivers I knew had monster trout there. And I'm thinking to myself, if I could only just stay here for a little while, but I couldn't because I was just at a layover. I had to wait for my plane to take off. Now, now, eventually, I went back to Colorado and found all those things to be absolutely true, and I would love to live in Colorado someday. Love the mountains and the jewels those mountains hold. But that day, all it was was a transitory. It was just a layover for me. It was just a little stop along the way. Don't get used to where you're at, because likely God will move you somewhere tomorrow. You may be just experiencing a little layover And the ultimate destination is when we see him face to face. So don't get too attached to where he leads you. Don't be rigid. Some warnings. Don't get too attached to where you are and don't be rigid and refuse to change. If you won't go, God may construct circumstances in order to compel you to go. I have one word here to illustrate this. Jonah. If you get really attached to where you're at. You like it so much, you just like to stay there. You rigidly refuse to move. I want to introduce you to a guy in the Old Testament whose name is Jonah. And if you don't know about Jonah, you should read the story. It's, it's really pathetic. Jonah is, is, is like the prophet of God that will not change. So what happens? God forces him to change. He uses circumstances to compel him to change. And it's also interesting to me that in Hebrews chapter 11 in the Hall of Faith... Abraham, Joseph, Moses, the Passover, all these things are included in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is a New Testament chapter that tells us about how all these amazing people lived in the Old Testament. All these people are included. And God tells us they were all not rigid to stay where they were. They, were keep, they kept moving, always thinking God had something better around the corner. Hebrews 11 verse 16, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. That is our attitude, church. So don't get too attached to where you are. Number three, don't be pragmatic. And forfeit your character for what you think might be next for you. Wherever God has for you to move tomorrow, he will make it happen. You do not need to forfeit your character in order to get there. God will never make you be somebody you shouldn't be to get to where he needs you to be tomorrow. Whatever God has for you today will not ever require you to break his overall desire for you to be holy and live in the right ethical way. And number four, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't prefer the familiar over the unknown. Of all the incredible things Joseph did in faith, this is the most incredible one that was reiterated in Hebrews chapter 11, in the hall of faith. Abraham is in there, Isaac is in there, Jacob is in there, and Joseph did some amazing things. To me, the most amazing thing that Joseph did was forgive his loser brothers, right? Isn't that a big one? 
That is a moment of faith. He is not commended for that in Hebrews 11. You know Joseph, and you're probably thinking, well, Craig, I would agree with that, but I would say his, his faith during the 20 years when he was forgotten, sold into slavery, when he was thrown into prison and lied about, when he stayed faithful to God, that's what he should be commended for in Hebrews 11, and he was not. The only thing Joseph is commended for in Hebrews 11, I'll give you the verse. Here's what it actually says in verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, and gave direction concerning his bones. That is the only thing Joseph is commended for, by, in, for doing in faith. Do you know why? Because Joseph didn't forget about the promise of God. They would become a great nation, and they would move back to Canaan. Joseph believed that in faith. Joseph just gave his brothers and their kids and their kids' kids and their kids' kids' kids and their kids' 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 kids. He gave them the best place they could possibly live on the planet, the richest place on the planet to live. But right before he died, he said to his brothers, listen, you have life good here, but please don't forget you have to go home. And when you do, dig me up and take me with you. That's what he's commended for in the book of Hebrews. Why is that? Because Joseph never had eyes on the short game. He was always remembering God's long game. And he knew they weren't supposed to stay there. And he said, when you leave, take my bones with you. He wasn't afraid. Because God's promise is always best. So whatever God has for you tomorrow is always better than where you are now. Believe it in faith. God's plans were to take them back to Israel because there was more history to come. Jesus had to be born. The Messiah had to live and die and live in Galilee and die in Jerusalem and raise from the dead. And all of this had to happen. He had to have a bunch of Jewish people to lead around and call his disciples and then ask people to forgive how they acted on a regular basis. I mean, this, this is the history that was supposed to happen. It was all prophesied. And Joseph knew that. And he wasn't afraid of what would come. For you, God has an incredible plan for your life, or you simply wouldn't be here. Can I just say that to you one more time? You are sitting here because God still has an incredible plan for your life. If his plan for you was over, you would be too. God has you here for a reason. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how many gifts you have. It doesn't matter how much you think you have to contribute. If you're here, God has a plan for you. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be timid. Don't get stuck. Don't think this is, this is the best because tomorrow is going to be better. Move in faith, believing that God's plans are always best. Don't sell yourself short. God loves to use you. Don't be afraid to try something new. God loves to stretch you. Don't shrink into a ball and think you're forgotten because God still has plans for you. Your feelings will always try and sell you a false reality. But walk by faith, believing God's promises aren't done yet. I give you one more verse, Philippians 1.6. It's one of my favorite ones. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion upon the day of Jesus Christ. You know what that means? God's not done yet, and neither are we. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to the end of this message
dealing with a lot of history, but history that makes a difference because for us, it's a reminder to us that you work on a big blueprint scale. We have a tendency to just kind of judge things by what we see next and plan for the next big event. But Lord, it's hard for us to remember you plan for small events, big events, and everything in between. So Father, help us to be people that walk by faith and not by sight, believing that you have a greater picture. Help us not to get stuck. Help us not to imagine that this is all that there is. Even the fact that we believe in faith, that when we die, we will see you face to face. Face is a, an incredible an incredible thing we talk about on a regular basis because we remind ourselves, you're not done with us yet. And when you, when you are, even then, you're not done with us. So thank you for involving us in this big picture. It occurs to me some people are maybe here today and they're thinking to themselves, oh, yeah, I don't know if God can really use me like he used Joseph. Help us not to judge our worth by the scales of importance we deem upon ourselves or others. Help us to simply believe that your plans are best and that you can use us in amazing ways. Little ways, big ways, and everything in between. So Father, we do believe that your ways are best. All things work together for good to those who are called according to your purpose. So use us for your purpose. And in doing so, help us make a difference for the glory of Jesus Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every service we finish with a time of communion. Uh, And the reason we do is because we want to make sure that the gospel is paramount to our mornings together. Whether we're talking about Exodus or Genesis or some book in First Peter. We want to make sure that you understand the reason we do all of this is simply because of Jesus Christ. All of history is centered around the cross. It is the fulcrum upon which history balances. I've said this before and I'll say it again. I love that it's even called history because it's his story. Jesus was promised to us before anybody even walked the planet after Adam and Eve. He was promised to us that he would fix this issue of sin. And all of history occurs because it's his story of how that redemption took place. And the gospel is his story. Welcome, little kids. Come on in. Find somebody that loves you and sit with them, all right? When we take communion, it is a reminder to us of what's most important. Jesus was the one person in history who broke the and. Because when I have kids, it's an and. And when you have kids, it's an and. And when they have kids, it's an and. And everybody before us is an and because when the first person sinned, all those sins, sins passed on from generation to generation. For by one man sin came into the world and death passed to all men because all have sinned. This and is that, okay, they had kids and they were sinners and they had kids and they were sinners and they had kids and they struggle with sin and they had kids and they struggle with sin. And if you have kids, I'm hoping you know they struggle with sin. And if they don't, I'd love to trade swap a little bit with you, have your kids over. 
It's a reminder to us that every generation struggles with sin because we live in this and process. But you have to understand with Jesus Christ, there is a but, B-U-T, but. And the but is this. At one point in history, there was a man who was born sinless. But at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus is the only person who walked the planet free of sin. His mother didn't. His grandmother didn't. His grandfather didn't. His dad didn't. They were all in the ends. But Jesus broke the, broke the chain. That is the gospel story. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. He shed his blood because that blood had to be perfect so it could cover the sins of the rest of us. He voluntarily died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins and we could become sons and daughters of God. He is the break in the chain. When you take the juice, you are saying, this blood saves me from my sin. I am an and. I continue the sin line. But Jesus saved me. When you drink the juice, you're saying his blood has set your sins free. Cast them away. And when you eat the bread, you are saying that his body that was given on that tree, on that cross, shed that blood and was crucified, was pierced, so that my sins could be on his shoulders. I get to heaven on the back of a broken Savior. So if you're here with us and you're thinking to yourself, I've never taken communion before, you need to understand that's what this is all about. And if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, take the juice and take the bread when it comes across. Hold on to it. Stand, sing, rejoice with us. We're going to sing some great songs. And then I'm going to come up and I'm going to read a verse of Scripture and we're going to eat and drink together. Why? Because I'm a part of the and too. I struggle with sin too, just like you do. I need the blood. I need the body to forgive me of my sins as well. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I'd ask that you just pass that plate along. Why? I don't want to make you stand out. It's not, that's not our purpose. We just don't want you to say something that may not be true for you yet. Better than cracker and juice, we'd love to give you Jesus Christ. It's so easy to accept Christ for us. That's why we call it grace. It cost him everything. But for us, it's just a, it's free to all who believe in him. You can go over to that prayer booth. Brent is going to be over there with you. Brent, raise your hand up there. This is Brent. He's going to be over there at that prayer booth. And we would love to share with you the gospel. Real simple this morning so that you know when you lay your head on your pillow tonight, you're forgiven, free, part of the family of God. We're going to take a moment before we do that and uh, give you a moment just to speak to God, you and him. Maybe you need to just thank him for what he's done. Maybe you need to confess something you know is heavy on your heart and he's revealed it to you today. Whatever it is, this is your moment with him. And then I'm going to come up and I'll pray. We'll sing, we'll pass out the juice and the bread, and then we'll hang on to it, we'll eat and drink together, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here's your time with the Lord. Would you just bow your heads and spend some time with him alone?